That is why we come to this text and any text looking how it affects us today, how it trains us and prepares us for the future. So the context here with the first 11 verses really fall into a larger section of the first 14 verses. For time's sake, I've decided to look at these first 11 verses, then look at 12 and 13 next week, and then verse 14 the following week. Uh, I believe verses 1 through 14 are one thought. Hear now God's word, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray together. Father, as the 43rd Psalm says so beautifully, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us. Let them bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This passage is about a rest that only God can give. It's about a supernatural rest. Ultimately, it is about eternal rest. It is about heaven. And let us understand that the temporal manifestations of rest that we enjoy as the people of God are all precursors or prefigurements of the ultimate rest we will have in eternity with Christ. So what we do on earth as a prefigurement is very important towards preparing us to eternity, eternal worship, eternal service to God. In fact, think of just the sacraments, for instance. What we partake of is a prefigurement of the wedding supper that we will be part of in heaven. What we do now, brothers and sisters, bottom line, matters for eternity. We don't just get through this life so we get on to the better life. We enter rest when we enter relationship with Christ, who is our rest. We rest in Christ, and he gives us rest from all our strivings on this earth. So what you do now matters. I was thinking of our graduates, and I won't say which subjects, but when I graduated, I remember... Or maybe years went on as I went through college and graduate school. I remember back at some of the subjects that I sat under, and I can't honestly tell you what they did for me. I'm not going to say which subjects, because I don't want to discourage the younger folks who are still studying things like math and other, other things like that. <laughs> but the point being is, there are some things that you do in life, and it's important to go through them, and it's not always quantifiable as to how it's going to help in the future. As a whole, there's nothing in life that's like that as it relates to heaven. 
it all has eternal significance. It may be wasting something for eternal significance, but it all has ramifications for the future. That's the truth of what we do and how we live today. And so when I think of rest, I think of the temporal forms of rest God has granted his people, which we'll look at this morning, but also think ultimately then of heaven. My mind always goes to heaven. And I can't tell you many details about heaven because the scripture, knowing our minds can only handle so much, gives us what we need to know. In fact, one of my favorite verses, which I think is speaking of the resurrection, the final resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I can tell you this about heaven. We will always be with the Lord. What I can't tell you about heaven doesn't matter when I say we will always be with the Lord. Now, there are other details the scripture gives us, but that covers it for my heart. We will always be with the Lord. And J.I. Packer, one of the wisest writers in my mind, said it well in commenting on this verse. Listen to what Packer says. We cannot visualize heaven's life, and the wise man will not try to do so. Instead, he will dwell on the doctrine of heaven, where the redeemed will find all their heart's desire, joy with their Lord, joy with his people, and joy in the ending of all frustration and distress, and in the supply of all wants. What was said to the child, if you want sweets and hamsters in heaven, they'll be there, was not an evasion, but a witness to the truth that in heaven no felt needs or longings go unsatisfied. What our wants will actually be, however, we hardly know, except the first and foremost. We shall want to be always with the Lord. What shall we do in heaven? Not lounge around, but worship, work, think, and communicate, enjoying activity, beauty, people, and God. First and foremost, however, we shall see and love Jesus, our Savior, Master, and Friend. Heaven is, forms the bookends of this passage, eternal rest. In the middle is all that temporal rest that God has blessed us with now that we are to strive to enter into. God continues to promise rest for his people. Will you enter this rest? I want us to consider the passage in two sections. The first section being the longer of the two. The promise of rest for God's people continuing. What I mean by this, in this passage, there is allusion to several different historical points in the life of God's people where rest is brought into the equation again. Temporary rest, as well as a picture to the ultimate rest that we never get to until we go home to be with the Lord, till he brings his church to himself. Think about this as the passage unfolds. I'll take it chronologically. First, in creation, we have a reference to rest. Look at verse 3 of our text. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. And he's referring to the rest, uh, the temporal rest that is given to his people. But then again, there's this this prefigurement, continuing in verse 3. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This reference to the sovereign predetermined plan of God in all things. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. Notice what he says in the creative order. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That is a creation ordinance, my dear brothers and sisters. That is not something that is only found in the Ten Commandments. And if that were enough, it would be enough. But for a moment, let's take the erroneous position that the Ten Commandments don't apply to the church today. That's a hideous position, but for a moment, let's consider that. 
it's still a creation ordinance. Marriage, work, and rest are created, creative ordinances. Why is this important? It's your divine design. God made you for these things. In particular, the work and rest construct, that it permeates humanity. To be human is to work and to rest. This is pre-fall that this is given. So the creation Sabbath rest given to us is a gift from God to recharge us. Now, you don't have to change the oil in your car every three to 5,000 miles. In fact, if you've got a newer car, go 20,000 miles without changing it. Your car will probably work, but your motor will blow soon thereafter. You name the maintenance we are supposed to do in temporary ways, whether it's change the belt on your vacuum cleaner, whether it's recharging batteries that need your, your phone. You can go longer than what the manufacturer says. Go ahead and do it. It'll probably work but it won't work well and it won't work long. The creation Sabbath gift is for you to operate at your optimum capacity. And I promise you that if you're not honoring that, you are not working at your optimum capacity and you will not last long. That's a created creation ordinance. You may be really, really optimum now in your mind, but that will go away as you wear out. Rest is constantly built in to humanity, humanity's very fabric. We see that in this reference to the seventh day of rest. God's description of the creation is for us in particular, among other things, for us to see how he wants us to behave. Did God need to rest? No, he needed to show us how we were made. Manufacturer's directions. So he starts with rest as a very uh, ordinance of creation, both temporary as humans needing it and eternal our position with him. And it goes on. The reference also, chronologically, from creation, then Israel in the wilderness before they take the promised land. Look at the first two verses, referring back to what's already been brought up in Psalm 95. Verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering its rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's a mixing of this, this reference to the temporary rest that we're given as believers, but the future rest, that we enter into temporal rest with Christ and will eternally experience that rest. Israel in particular wrestled and strived against God by disobeying them on their way to receiving the promised land. So God in judgment said, this unbelieving generation will not rest in that land. Your memory will always be striving with the Egyptians, striving with other nations, working for your food, having those things uh, that will be given in the land of milk and honey. You will not experience, you will not rest. That generation would be wiped out essentially, funeral after funeral, till finally a believing generation enters the promised land and has temporal rest a picture to future eternal rest. And please notice the unity of this message, this promise of rest for God's people of all time. Very specifically in verse 1, or verse 2, excuse me, for good news came to us just as to them. It's always a foregone conclusion in the writer of the Hebrew, uh, book of Hebrews' mind that the church is one church. Israel in the Old Testament, uh, the church in the New, it's all one people of God. The same gospel message saves the Old Testament people of God look forward to the redemption Christ provided. We look back upon the redemption Christ has provided. One people of God, same gospel message. 
Israel in the wilderness disbelieved that message. Therefore, they did not enter temporal rest, and as implied here as well, many did not even enter eternal rest, for they didn't truly trust in God's redemption. Then there's Joshua's time. They do enter the rest eventually or enter the land, and they don't take it perfectly. You remember that Joshua's time, uh, they did not wipe out all the remnants of paganism, and that eventually came back to bite them. But God delivered his part of the covenant, if you will, by giving them rest. It even says literally in Joshua that he gave rest to his enemies. So for this first time, there's no war, there's no slavery, there's actually rest in a land that has provision for them, and they rested for a time. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. But wait a minute. I just said there's a rest. Joshua says there's rest. Yes, there's a prefigurement of the ultimate rest, and there's an experience of a break, you might say, but they do not receive the ultimate rest that will come. It's prefiguring what eternal rest would be like. Then they're all the way to David's time. 500 years between the time of Joshua and then David. David takes Psalm 95 and applies it to the church at that time, 500 years later. It was originally said of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now it's said of the church in his day, which is 500 years after that. That's why the writer of Hebrews takes it and applies it to us, to the church 2,000 years ago and to us in a timeless way about entering rest. Look at verse 7. And again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So the warning of not entering rest is the same for every generation of God's people. From creation through the rebellious nation of Israel, Joshua's time, even as they enter the temporal rest, David's time, 500 years later, some might say the height of the kingdom era. And now, verse 9. So then, in light of all this, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you believe that? There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Does that mean we do away with the temporal forms of rest? Jesus doesn't. Paul sure doesn't. No writer of Scripture does. What's done away in those temporary expressions is the pharisaical legalism that is tied to those things. Jesus never stops the adherence to a temporal rest the Sabbath day. Why does he not? Because it's a creation ordinance. He demonstrated it. He honored the Sabbath day. What did he get rebuked for? Man-made rules concerning the Sabbath day. Not for keeping the Sabbath as God would have him, as God had given to him as a gift. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, both temporary and the eternal rest that we will experience. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore, verse 11, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's a reaffirmation concerning the ultimate eternal rest given to us once more, the people of God. And remember, there's always value in the temporary for what will be eternal because it is eternal. You're eternal beings. What you do now matters. It counts I'd like us to pause for a moment to consider the misconception surrounding this word rest in our day. Rest, my brothers and sisters, is not laziness. It is not idleness. It is not a heavenly hammock where we sit for eternity having someone bring us lemonade. That's not rest. We experience rest in a fallen way because the work we do is hard because of sin. Work by its divine design is not hard pre-fall. Now it's different for us. We strive. There's some satisfaction, but it's never done. 
It's never complete. We don't keep the earth like we ought to. We don't keep our households like we ought to. So there's a striving, a frustration with today's work. But that won't be the case when we're relieved of this fallenness. So it's not about just laying around, which may seem like rest to us today. It's the Bible's meaning for rest. What is rest, biblically speaking? Literally, the word that we get Sabbath from means to be free from worry or anxiety or connection to something that has a hold on us. It means literally to be settled, to be secure, to have something to lean on, to cease from striving. It's tranquility. It's peace. Rest is not idleness. It's not laziness. It's not complete inactivity. Well, consider this then. What are the different forms of rest we see in Scripture to put them all together? This text is complicated in how it weaves in and out. Simply, let's just quantify them. One, rest from our strife with God. That's the number one rest we're given. We no longer are at war with God. We are given peace. The dividing wall of separation between us and the Father is removed by Christ's blood. So we have rest with God. Rest in Christ. Rest with the war that goes on between us and God. The shed blood of Christ does this. That's the number one level of rest described in Scripture. Then there is the creation ordinance and the command. The Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's something that's true about the part and parcel of our fabric, and it's also a vivid expression of the righteousness of God given to us in codified form in the Ten Commandments, which are as applicable today as they ever were. So we have the Sabbath day. We have the Canaan rest, or those temporary rests that we have as we obey the Lord. There's blessing that comes with obedience that gives us rest. Very vivid example. If we commit adultery, you will have unrest in your household. You could cause unrest for generations. You will have strife. If we obey that ordinance that the Lord gives us to obey the marriage vow, the marriage bed to keep it sacred, then we experience blessing and rest and tranquility that we couldn't have otherwise. Take any form of obedience and there's rest that comes, temporal rest from our obedience. It's just the way it's designed to bless. These commands are for us to grow in grace. That's how Canaan was for the Israelites. It would have been a temporary rest for them had they obeyed, but a whole generation missed out on that. Then finally, and most importantly, and ultimately, there is heavenly rest, eternally with our Lord. That is heaven. Time forever with him in service and worship and fellowship. Those are the kinds of rest there are in Scripture, and they're often interweaved because they all connect together to the same rest that's provided for us in God, in Christ. The significance of these temporal forms is that they are archetypes, precursors, prefigurements of eternal rest. They prepare us for eternity. Can I just give you three pastoral considerations regarding ways in which you should rest, the ways I should rest based on these scriptural principles? Number one, rest from your striving against God. I speak first to someone who's not a believer, someone who does not claim a relationship with Christ. And in your heart, you're shaking your fist at God. You're upset with him for something, for something that's happened in your life. And you can only focus on that thing. And you're striving against God. Yes, God, I believe in you, but I'm mad at you. And you strive against God and you have no rest. You have constant anxiety, constant bitterness that shows itself in your family, your friends, and ultimately, and most importantly, your stiff-neckedness to God. If you are in that case, rest in Christ. Let him take away that dividing wall. I can't make it happen, but it's my duty to tell you how it does happen. Christ. Only Christ can take that bitterness away. But you know, it's not just to unbelievers. 
You may be striving against God as his child. Do your children strive against you at times? They sure do, don't they? And as in the popular word, or words of a popular psychologist, how does that work for them? It doesn't work well. There's strife in your house because you have to bring discipline in order for them to understand the way the Lord has led them and how the Lord will bless them for that obedience. And strife comes when there's disobedience in the household. Strife comes when the child of God refuses to hear God's word and they harden their hearts. And strife at this entry level goes on with your relationship with the Lord as a child of God. And you stand just like a child who stands stiff and won't let you hug him. That's what you do with God. Rest from your striving against God. Both unbelievers who need to come to Christ and believers who need to remember what it means to be in Christ, to be a child of God. But also, I would give you these other considerations. First, rest from your striving against God. Second, celebrate the day of rest, the Sabbath day. I'll tell you from the onset, I'll say things that probably step on our modern toes, and that's why, because it's modern culture making its way into church, into the church, instead of the church making its way into modern culture. And one of the chief ways that I've noticed pastorally and personally uh, of our in, that has led to our ineffectiveness has been our unwillingness to celebrate the Sabbath day. I didn't say keep the Sabbath day with a bunch of rules. I said to celebrate the Sabbath day. In fact, if your attitude is to be ho-hum or nasty about it, don't come here because you'll just bring it down for the rest of us. Because celebrating the Sabbath is the point. Not thinking of a list I got to keep or like the Pharisees thought, oh, you picked a piece of weed off the top. That's not what the Sabbath's about. It's a celebratory day. It's a day that's different than the other days. It's a day that refreshes, revives, recreates us. This is God's design for us. In fact, with all that's been written and all the debate about it, you just listen to the command and you tell me in your heart how this applies to your particular household. Remember, we, we believe we shouldn't lie, right? We believe we don't murder, right? Well, here's another commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you will not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I think one of the big reasons why people are so earthly-minded in the church is their disregard for the Lord's day, the day that's been given to us, to revive us. Not to make us miserable, but to re-encourage and invigorate us. I think one of the reasons why the church is so ineffective in our culture is we're tired. We're wore out. We're signed up for every activity we could possibly be, even on the Lord's Day. We have the mindset that, yes, in fact, I've got to work this day, or I won't make my numbers at the end of the month, or the prophet won't be there. Or, and that's all a statement, an anti-supernatural statement, that, God, your promise is not true to meet all my needs. I've got to work on this day that you say you'll give back to me if I give it to you. And the church has bought this. And to get ahead with our cell phones, our laptops, and our constant nonstop work, we do it on the Lord's Day, too. And we're tired. It's not that we're not well-meaning. We're just wore out. We've got nothing left to witness to. We can barely lift our head up. You know, I enjoy shooting a bow and arrow. I shoot a compound bow. I like the modern compound bow. It's faster. It's more accurate. It's just more fun to shoot. However, there are traditional archers who use nothing more than what I would say is a stick and string. It's a, a cured piece of wood tie taunt with a string of sorts, and they could shoot these things with incredible accuracy. But what they do 
to take care of their bow is key. It's important. Every time they get done using it, they take the string off because it's intense tension that is put on this bow when they're shooting it. They can't store it that way, unlike a compound bow that has a cam system that relieves the pressure. A stick and string doesn't have that. So every time they get done using it, they take the string off and store it. When they go to where they're going to shoot, they have to get it back out and they have to put the string attention. If you don't do that, that bow is going to break in a matter of time. If you don't relieve the tension, if you don't take the tension off your life God's way, then your bow, your life is going to break. This is not just me saying because I want to have numbers on, uh, at church. It's because I believe it and I think it's one of the main things that's hurting our families today. We spend no time directly focused upon our being renewed in Christ as a family, as a church family. It's just another day to get something else done. Well, you know, in Isaiah's day, the church was very depressed. It was not having an effect on the wider culture. In Isaiah, the prophet says something that is profound, and it strikes me every time I read it. Isaiah says to the people of God, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath the delight in the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talk idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's not just to the old church. That's still to the church today. If you have your hymnal, turn to page 392. It's a wonderful hymn. O day of rest and gladness. We don't sing it often because the tune is difficult. Not that we can't learn it, we just haven't taken it up. We do sing it in the evenings because we have a different hymn tune for it that's easier to sing. Hymn number 392 is written by a man named Christopher Wordsworth. It's a a hymn about the Sabbath day. And I have a good uh, hunch as to why the church doesn't sing it that often. O day of rest and gladness. That's his description of Sabbath. O day of rest and gladness. And this man was described in the mid-1800s as being one of the happiest people uh, the observers ever noted. So he's hardly this hardened pharisaical legalist who says, you better keep the Sabbath in that sense. Look what he says in his glorious description of that day. He says in the first verse, O day of rest and gladness, O day of joy and light, O balm of care and sadness, most beautiful and most bright, on you the high and lowly, through ages joined in tune, sing holy, holy, holy to the great God triune. Second verse, on you at the creation, remember the Sabbath day is you, on you at the creation, the light first had its birth, on you for our salvation, Christ rose from the depths of earth. On you, our Lord, victorious, the Spirit sent from heaven, and thus on you, most glorious, a triple light was given. He continues about the Sabbath day. You are a port protected from storms that round us rise, a garden intersected with streams of paradise. You are a cooling fountain in life's dry, dreary sand. From you, life, Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. It's a temporary rest that looks to the eventual rest. Today on weary nations, the heavenly manna falls. To holy convocations, the silver trumpet calls. Where gospel light is glowing with pure and radiant beams. And living water flowing with soul-refreshing streams. That's the Sabbath. Not this nasty thing we got to keep. In the last verse, new graces ever gaining from this our day of rest. We reach the rest remaining to spirits of the blessed. To Holy Ghost be praises, to Father and to Son. The church, her voice upraises to you, blessed three in one. We're missing something today, brothers and sisters. I really believe it. 
something profound, revolutionary, as far as what it would communicate to the world. I'll give you these things, and you can take them for what they're worth. Plan for the Sabbath day. Be with the church during its called meeting times. If the leaders think it's important to be there, it's important to be there. Nap on that day. Take a rest. Throw a football around with your son or your daughter. Catechize. Talk as a family about life. All, everyone moving it. Stop and say, this is the day we come together and, and spend it with each other. And we spend it with the Lord's people in the Lord's house. We refresh. We don't work that day. And I, what I mean by not working is we don't do what's our vocation. That thing that says we're trying to earn our li- we take a break from that and let the Lord give to us what we need. And we don't make others work. And I'll let you Decide how that is. The sojourner inside your gates. Do not make them work either. That's what it says. I promise you, if you do this for four weeks, your life will be different. Because yes, you'll probably have to give up something you're used to doing. But give it up for four weeks and then tell me that it doesn't help you. Four weeks is all I'm asking you to think about this. Watch how it changes our church. Watch how it changes our culture. Eventually, as the church is obedient, don't be legalist about it. Don't look around and see who's doing what. That's not the point. If you're grumpy about it, like I said, don't come here Sunday night because we're happy to be here. Do it because you believe that's part of what, how God has created you. I would also say to you, based on these, these different ways in which we should rest, rest from our striving against God, celebrate the day of rest, but also live in light of the future rest that you will have in Christ for eternity. What you do now matters. So think in those terms for eternity. In fact, one of the most profound things C.S. Lewis ever said in Mere Christianity, a wonderful book, is probably not quoted that often, but it's one of my favorite statements. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. That's the late 1950s when he wrote that. See what he's saying? We're we're not heavenly-minded anymore. And I don't mean be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I don't mean that. I mean look to the eternal rest we're going to have, and it makes you strive all the harder now for him. The second portion of this text, besides the first, which is the temporal and the eternal focus on rest, but also strive to enter that rest is the command that we have, or the imperative we have in the text. I don't have as much time to spend on this, but it's something that is pervasive throughout the book. And there are two ways in which we strive to enter the rest, some of which we've already alluded to with regard to the Sabbath day. But in a more general way, the text outlines for us two things, faith in the promises of the Word of God and fear, diligence, and obedience in how we carry those out. For faith in the Word of God, see in verse 1, therefore the promise, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So that's a promise from God. That's God's Word to us. We can trust that. So we start by trusting and believing in God's promises. That's the beginning of all of it. It's the beginning of the first, the first level of rest. Faith in God's promises as revealed in his word. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So faith in the word, then fear and diligence. Diligence coming from this idea in verse 1, or verse 11, excuse me, of striving to enter the rest. So believe in the word. Approach God with fear, that is reverence and respect. He's serious. He's not a heavenly grandfather just giving you little candies or uh, saying yes to anything you would say or that's cute to anything you do. He's God. He's serious. So take him with seriousness, fear, reverent fear, not scared, but fear, respect, and diligently 
walk in his ways as he outlines them for us. So faith in his word, fear and diligence, and obedience. As you work through these things, they are simply an outflow of the true faith he's given you. That is the way we strive in this life to enter that rest, to walk in his ways, to guard our hearts, that we might know him better. That's how we enter God's rest, God's way. The book plays this out throughout, and we'll come back to this again. Do things now for eternity. Prepare for eternity. My dear brothers and sisters, there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you believe it? We have been given rest in many ways already. In this way, we have entered rest. Rest from our strife with God, a weekly Sabbath for us, an eternal rest that we look forward to. I want to close with the profound words of Alexander McLaren, who says something that I think is nothing short of revolutionary regarding this future view of eternal rest. Hear what he says. The caricature of heaven as an eternity of idleness, he says, has no basis in Scripture. Instead, the New Testament conception unites the two thoughts of being with Christ and of service for Christ. This blending is definitely set forth in the last chapter of Revelation, where we, re- we read of those who serve him and see his face. And hear this. Here, the life of contemplation and the life of active service are welded together. That's life now. Our contemplation of who God is and our life of active service. But it's encumbered by our fallenness. Heaven will perfectly have this blended. Here, the life of contemplation, the life of action of active service are welded together as being not only compatible, but absolutely necessary for completeness. But remember that if there is to be service there, the exercising ground is where? Here. I do not know what we are in this world, for unless it is to be apprentices for heaven, life on earth is a bewilderment unless we are being trained here for a nobler work which lies beyond the grave. That, my brothers and sisters, is how you're different from everyone else on earth. You don't think it stops here. You're not a slave to here. You live now for there, which is forever. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Will you enter? Let us pray. Father, help us not to be so bound to the temporary that we cannot see your eternal order. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. Lord, we are inconsistent people. None of us claims any amount of perfection. We know you don't love us more just because we do thus and so. But Lord, we do want to honor you. And we see what you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be obedient out of a true heart bent towards you and your will. I pray, Lord, that you would bless my brothers and sisters here gathered. Pray that you'd keep them. I pray that you would shine your face upon them. Give them rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We look to our Lord and our King to lead us in this striving for rest, if you will. Let's turn to 580. Stand together and respond, singing verse 1 and verse 2 of Lead on, O King Eternal.